Ephesians chapter 1. We began last week, I guess technically, we did an introduction to Ephesians last week. And in the wake of that, I had three or four people, I can't remember, ask me, so how long are we going to be in Ephesians? I think I scared some people because I mentioned that my pastor, when teaching through Ephesians, took two years. I think I freaked some people. How long are we going to be? There's a few... At the, risk, at the risk of sounding like that guy, as long as the Lord wants us. And I know that sounds like a Jesus juke, but it's my honest answer. I, I, don't, I Honestly, I don't understand guys who, who do a sermon calendar and plan out their preaching schedule a year in advance. I've, I've tried kind of sometimes on Wednesdays, ask the Wednesday night folks, when I've tried to do that, I've always been wrong, not a little wrong, very, very, very wrong. So if you ask me to guess, that's all I would be doing is guessing. My guess would be we've been taking on average, if I look back at our study through Paul's epistles so far, we've been averaging maybe a chapter a month. So if we, if we do that math, six chapters in Ephesians, four in Philippians, four in Colossians, 14 chapters, Feels like we're, we'll spend next year, 2024, and maybe a skosh more in the prison epistles, and then 2025 will find us in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy plus Titus, all of which assuming that Jesus doesn't come back first, which would be very okay with me. But but that's a guess, and 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 I don't even like to guess because I, I just like to enjoy the journey. I don't, I don't want to labor over the text and make sure we've squeezed every last drop of juice out of every word, but, but I don't want to rush either. We, and, and that's how we always are with the Lord, right? In everything, we don't want to get ahead of him. We don't want to lag behind him. We want to walk with him and trust that he knows what he's doing as he leads us. And this morning, he's led us to consider just a handful of verses. We're not going to do a lot more than we did last week, actually. Just a single sentence in our New King James translation. And it turns out it's not even a single sentence in the Greek. But, but man, Ephesians is just saturated with meaning. We'll, let's, let's read our text. And, and since it's just a short one this morning, we'll back up all the way to the beginning and we'll get a running start. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul. It's me, Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, and we said last week probably to more than just Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace the means, peace the result. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved." That gets us to a period in the New King James. In the Greek, the thought continues all the way to verse 14. Just one run-on sentence, the, the kind that Paul is famous for. One long thought following thought following thought describing God's love for us. 
one sentence in the Greek with the King James translators have broken into four sentences. And, and some people take those four sentences and they try to impose an outline upon them. And, and they see verses three through six that we just read, speaking of the Father's love to us. And the, the next two sentences, verses seven through 12, speaking of the Son's love and the Son's ministry to us. And then the last two, uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit's faithfulness in our lives. And, and, and you know, if, you, if you glance through the paragraph, I think that they're pointing at, at something. I think that you can make too much out of too little, but Paul is clearly talking about how every each of the three persons of the Godhead is involved in loving us. Here, here's the thing, though. I'm not pausing at verse 6 this morning because it's a Roman numeral on somebody's outline. I'm pausing because Paul has already given us a ton to talk about. Starting with the word in verse 5 that I know jumped off the page at everybody, predestined. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and, and more than the Ephesians, like we said, you're probably aware that these opening verses are, are closely scrutinized and often cited in service of the doctrine of predestination, that God sovereignly chose some to be redeemed. Our Calvinist friends love this passage. Our Calvinist friends and others whose doctrine emphasizes God's sovereignty in predestining some to salvation while de-emphasizing, in most cases, the role of our free will. Calvinists love them some Ephesians chapter 1. And the clear teaching we have here says that they're not completely wrong. What we just read tells us that before God laid the foundation of the world, verse 4, he chose, picked out, selected, predestined some to be saved. And we've talked about this recently, right? Before we were in Acts, we were in the book of Romans, as we go chronologically through the life of Paul. And in the book of Romans, you remember as we unpacked it, Paul talked about it. And when he did, you probably remember me saying, I don't especially have a problem with it. I'm not sure how I could, to be honest, have a problem with the doctrine of predestination. Because here and elsewhere, the Bible clearly teaches it. The Bible teaches that God chose some to be redeemed, chose them even before he created them, even before he created anything in the universe. Paul says it here, he says it in Romans 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. It's, it's there in black letter scripture, so I'm not going to pretend the Bible doesn't talk about it. Clearly it does. Talks about it a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different places. It's, it's there. The problem our Calvinist friends run into is it's not the only thing that's there. Predestination isn't all that the Bible teaches. And if we really want to be honest brokers, if we really want to have a, a thorough discussion, if we want to wrestle with this question of predestination versus free will, got to look at the whole counsel of God. We can't just grab a, a, a couple of verses that, that appeal to us that seem to align with our doctrine and weaponize them against the, the other. We can't do that. We have to look at what is the entirety of God's word say. And if we consider the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, we find that while the Bible, yes, does teach predestination playing a role in our salvation, we find 
our free will does as well. Easiest place to go to demonstrate that is the easiest verse to think of. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever. Not just the chosen, not just a few, not just the elect. Jesus' death was sufficient for anyone. Go a couple chapters deeper in John. John 5, starting in verse 38, Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, because Jesus talked a lot to the scribes and Pharisees, and tells them, you do not have his word, God's word, abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe, Jesus speaking of himself. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and you want eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, the volume of the book is written of me, Jesus says. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. What did Jesus just say to the scribes and Pharisees? He says, yo, you're not saved. You think you are, but you're not. Why aren't they? Jesus just said, chapter 5, verse 40 of John, you're not willing. Also interesting to go back to Romans, the same letter in which Paul talks about predestination, one of the letters we just read. Paul talks about predestination. Paul also says in that same letter, Romans 1 verse 20, because creation testifies to the, to the fact of a creator, if there's a reaction, there has to be a cause, because creation testifies to the existence of a creator, people have no excuse, Paul says, for not choosing God. To the Calvinist, that's a stumper, because it shouldn't even matter. If God chose me, then, then I'm chosen, and that should settle it. Apparently not. Apparently, Paul thinks that it's important, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, to believe in my heart and choose to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I go back to Romans just to illustrate the point. Paul wrote these words to the Ephesians, these words that are often held out as a proof text, as aha, aha, you see? There, that predestination, it's there, it's, it's, you can't deny it. Paul didn't want to deny it, but the fact that he spoke of both choosing God and being chosen by God in the same letter tells us he was very well aware of the tension between these doctrines. Very well aware of the dichotomy. Very mindful of the both-and relationship that free will and predestination have in our salvation. I remember listening to a pastor friend teach Ephesians chapter 1. Years, years and years ago, he was guest teaching. And he taught through, I don't know how much of it, but he taught through a, a good, good, good chunk of Ephesians 1. And he hit the sovereignty of God hard. God being sovereign in whom he'll save. He hit the sovereignty of God so hard, I asked him afterwards, Bobby, when did you become a Calvinist? He's a Calvary pastor. I said, Bobby, you sound just like a Reformed brother. He said, when I teach Ephesians chapter 1, I am. But when I get to 1 Timothy 2, I won't be anymore. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us that Jesus desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Two walls and three verses. Jesus' death was sufficient for all. 
Bobby's point, my point, which, which, which the Bible teaches both. It just does. The Bible teaches that God chooses us to be saved. The Bible also teaches that we choose him. You're making my head explode, Patrick. There's a contradiction there. Yeah, there is, but only to us. God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. And the best way I've ever found to explain that, you might remember this diagram from Romans. This, this piece of paper, the, the flat surface of it exists in two dimensions. It has height, it has width. Can you join these two X's, these two dots, can you connect them without touching any of the space between them? And if you confine yourself to two dimensions, the answer is obviously no. On the surface of the paper, you can't get from here to here without touching the space in between. It's impossible. But if you add a dimension, if you add depth, then it becomes trivial. I can connect from here to here using that third dimension. The, the mathematicians will say, in, in the face of tension, add a dimension. To resolve a paradox, just go get yourself some, some more dimensionality. And here's the thing. We exist in three and a half dimensions. Height, length, breadth, and, and half a dimension of time. We can go forward in time, we can't go back. We exist in three and a half dimensions. Jewish and Christian physicists Physicists who take the Bible seriously believe that God exists in at least 10 dimensions. What does that mean? It means that what seems a paradox to our mind is probably trivial to God. It means when we stand in front of the door leading to our salvation, on our side is a sign that says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Enter if you want, whomsoever will may come. But when we walk through the door and we look back at the sign for, for people on the heaven side, who, hey, who's coming through this door? The sign says, predestined from the foundation of the world. Those walking through are chosen by God. Both are true at the same time. If you want to dig into this more, best book I've ever found on the subject is Norm Geisler's book, Chosen But Free. And um, if, you want to, if you want to look at something shorter or more succinct, uh, I'll, I'll send some notes out this week, some suggestions, including one by George Bryson, Debbie's husband, Debbie, who did our women's retreat. Her husband has got a book um, exploring some of the fallacies of Calvinism that, that some find helpful. And I think, it's, I think that one is free online. I think there's a PDF of it floating around. But having, having said all that, I want to leave the subject. I want to leave the subject of, of free will and predestination and, and circle back to our text. If, 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 if I've just whet your appetite and you want to dig deeper, let's get together during the week. But, but for me, the unfortunate thing about this passage, it's so associated with this free will predestination debate, God's sovereignty, man's sovereignty, you can end up blowing right by everything else that's here. And there's a lot here. But that word predestined can eclipse everything else that God just said. In particular, everything that God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, just said about us. So in the time that we have left, I want to call out five things other than predestined. Five adjectives, five descriptors 
that God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, applies to us. We could probably come up with more than five if we wanted to, but let's, let's, let's look at five. Five ways God describes us in this handful of verses. Rewind to verse three. First one is, is, is easy and wonderful. God call, calls us blessed. Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed is an interesting word. It means, if, if you strip it down to, it, to, to its, its essence, it means celebrated. The line right above it, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we, how do we bless God? We celebrate him. How? With praise and thanksgiving. We bless God by acknowledging who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. But then Paul goes on to say God blesses us. How does he bless us? With every spiritual blessing. We bless God with praise. He blesses us with provision. We're celebrated by God, Paul just said. God rejoices about us. Rejoices, present tense. Not, not, not just that he did. Oh, hey, Patrick got saved. That's cool. Now i got to get back to what I was doing. No, he, he, he did and he will when, when, when we enter heaven, when, when, when Jesus returns for us, when we get our glorified bodies, God's going to rejoice. But in between the already and the, the, the not yet, God is rejoicing, celebrating, supplying, providing, blessing. All of us. Everything we need. Everything we want? No, sadly. <laughs> everything that matters? You bet. Peace and joy. Meaning and purpose future and hope, all of those things and more. And the way that I know those are the things that matter, when I talk to someone who's just gone on hospice, when I pray with someone who's just received a grim diagnosis or has had a conversation with a doctor and, and heard the fateful words, we've done all we can, they aren't thinking about stuff. They aren't worried about status or accomplishment or reputation. They want to know this life isn't all there is. They want to know that they made a difference, that, that after this life, looking back, it'll all make sense, that it was all worth it. Verse 3, Paul's reminding us, God has given us those answers, those affirmations. Peace, joy, meaning, purpose, future, hope. Those aren't just promises. Those are our possessions. We have, Peter says, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's one of the most amazing verses in Scripture. And Paul echoes it here. We have, right now, as believers in Jesus Christ, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need. And, and, and we, didn't, we didn't summon it from within ourselves, and we didn't extract it from the world around us, it came from the heavenlies. It came from him. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness. We respond to God's celebration of, uh, through provision with our celebration of praise. I said five words. The first was blessed. Second one, chosen. Verse four, he chose us. Haven't we already covered this, Patrick? Yes, except no. We talked about God choosing us for salvation, and that's not nothing. 
But choosing in the context of verse 4 is, is, is more than that. It carries an even greater meaning. Because Paul is not just saying that God chose us to escape hell. Chose us in him, that can also be translated, chose us for him, chose us for himself. And that opens up a, a whole new dimension, a whole, a whole new world of implication. And if, if, if we read further, further into chapter 1, further into the letter, that's clearly what Paul is conveying. He's saying God chose us for himself the way that he chose Israel. Chose us to know him. Chose us to have a special relationship with him. Chose us to be his unique, special people. In, in our case, chose us to be his bride, right? Chose us, as in all of us collectively. Chose us, as in each of us individually. Me and you and you and you. Specifically. That's one reason I don't run away from the doctrine of predestination. We, 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 we look at it and we say, well, it, it's good because it reminds us of our desperation. That apart from God, we would never find him. And, and, and that's true. The Bible clearly says the, the Holy Spirit calls us to God. So, so predestination, yeah, it, it emphasizes our desperation, our lack of merit, the, the fact that we weren't deserving, that we brought nothing of worth, the fact that, that all we could do is throw ourselves on God's mercy, yeah. But predestination, if we walk all the way around it, if we, if we consider 360 degrees of it, also reminds us that when we threw ourselves on his mercy, his mercy was there. Alongside my desperation was God's affection. His genuine, inexplicable desire for me. When I was the opposite of lovely, God loved me. And I think it's okay to say that. Some of my Reformed brothers have a problem with the song Beautiful Name. Specifically with the line, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. I was at a conference recently, and some pastors were sitting around kicking this around. Because the, the people who write columns on the internet about things that we should be offended by and upset about, that, that's, that's, a, that's a cause that, that some of them have taken up. And their argument, and I hear where they're coming from, their argument is that that makes Jesus sound needy. Jesus was sad and he was incomplete without us. Except that's not what it says. First of all, it, 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 it can't be, it can't, it's, first of all, it's not true. Let's back all the way up. Because Jesus, God, is sufficient unto himself. He's perfect and complete in every way, always has been, always will be. So that's, that's incontrovertible. Jesus is sufficient unto himself. Perfect and complete in every way. And yet, he chose us. He didn't need to. He wanted to. He did not need us in any way, shape, or form. And yet, he came for us. A tremendous cost. He paid for us. Didn't need us, that's, that, that, but, but wanted us badly enough to pay for us with his blood, with his life. Why? Because he wanted each of our unique voices, each of our distinct gifting, 
each of our individual callings and ministry, each of our personalities to be a part of his special people, to be a part of the chorus, praising him for eternity, to be part of the body, representing him to the earth today. We're chosen. Third descriptive that we get from Paul in this passage, blessed, chosen. Three is a twofer. Holy, verse 4, and without blame. Some translations render it holy and blameless, which is easier to say. Holy, you know, is set apart, separated. Blameless, without spot or blemish. Two for the price of one because they often travel together in Scripture. We see those two words together describing the sacrifices in the Old Testament, especially the Passover lamb that was, that was without spot or blemish. And, okay, then we have to apply those same two words to Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. And Peter does that. First Peter 1.19 talks about Jesus, holy and blameless, sacrificed for us. First Peter 1.19. But we also see those two words together applying to us. Those two words apply to Jesus, but they also remind us that's how God sees us. In his eyes, we're holy and blameless. We may not be holy and blameless in practice. By might not be, I mean definitely not. The lives we live here, we fall short. And yet because of the cross, God looks past that. We aren't holy and blameless in practice, but we are in position. Whatever wrong we might do, God has already forgiven. However far we fall short, Jesus has more than made up. 1 John 3, 2, John tells us that one day we will be like him. One day we will be like Jesus. The day we receive our glorified bodies and see Jesus face to face, we shall be like him. But in God's eyes, we already are. In God's eyes, we are right now. And God's not confused. He's not blind or deceived. We've all known parents who can't see their children's shortcomings. No matter what anybody tells them about their kids, they just, no, I can't believe it. Not my Johnny. In their eyes, it's impossible that their children would do anything wrong ever. That's sort of, but not exactly how God is with us. Because he knows the wrong that we do. There's nothing God doesn't know. He knows the sin that, that we commit, the corruption that we carry, but he also knows he's already forgiven it. He's blotted out every, every spot or blemish. And the difference is, is, is unlike those, those, those parents who can't see their children for who they really are, God doesn't imagine that we're blameless. God doesn't imagine that there's no spot or blemish. There is no spot or blemish. They're gone. The cross eliminated them so completely, it's like they were never there. So in God's eyes, we're, because of grace, we're already like him. He looks at us and sees his own perfection, his perfect and complete holiness, his perfect spotlessness. Long story less long, he looks at us and sees Jesus. Here's number four, adopted, blessed, chosen, holy and blameless, was a two for the price of one. Number four, adopted, verse five, by Jesus, through the cross, were adopted into God's forever family. We're eternally, now and forever, his sons and daughters. 
And when we were in Romans 8, we talked a little about that. We talked about the legality of it. We're joint heirs with Christ and what that means. And we talked about the familiarity of it, that, that we can call uh, God Abba, Papa. But, but, in, but in doing that, I'm not sure that, that, that we really grasped, I'm not sure that I really conveyed the enormity of what adoption means. This is a higher, greater, closer relationship than God has with the angels. Gabriel, Michael, they don't have that relationship with God. Adoption speaks of a higher, closer, deeper, more intimate relationship, get this, than Adam had. We think about Jesus at the cross restoring the relationship that we had before Adam and Eve went all Adam and Eve. But it's more than that. At the cross, Jesus didn't just restore the relationship that we had. He gave us more. More than the angels have, more than Adam had. At the cross, Jesus gave us the relationship that he has. And and, and he foreshadows that all through the Gospels. Only like 14 times in the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, does anybody call God Father? And each of those 14 times, it's stiff, it's formal, it's impersonal. Yes, uh, Father. When Jesus speaks to God, which he does 60 distinct times, he only calls him Father. Exception be when he's quoting Old Testament scripture, places like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when Jesus is speaking from his heart, it's always Father. It's always comfortable. It's always intimate. It's always familiar. It's always safe. It's the way it gets to be for us. It's the relationship that we get to have. I remember a pastor telling a story. Uh, his, His daughter had a child. His daughter had a son, and his grandson was born with this thick black hair. And his daughter, the baby's mom, said, that's so strange. Mark and I are both blonde, Mark, her husband. Mom and dad are both blonde, and here's this baby with this thick black hair. Her mom, pastor's wife, says, well, yeah, but your dad has dark hair. She looked at her mom and said, mommy, forget I'm adopted. Because she did. <laughs> In her mind, her daughter was her daughter, and that's, that's all there was to it. Her daughter was every bit her daughter in her mind. She didn't think about the adoption because it didn't matter. That's how close we are to God. He chooses not to remember a time that we weren't his children every bit as much as Jesus is. And that takes us to number five. Blessed, chosen, holy and blameless, adopted, accepted. Verse six. And accepted in this context means highly favored. And that's not a bad thing. I'll take that, to be highly favored by God? That's not nothing. It's also not all that Paul is saying. When he says that we're accepted, he's saying more than that. Read it in context, he says that we're accepted what? In the beloved, which means, a little transitivity, we are beloved. Paul says it here, he says it even more clearly, places like Romans 1-7, writing to the church at Rome. He addresses them as beloved of God. Because that's what we are. 
song we sang right before the message nails it. It lifts it up right from these verses and declares it. I am your beloved. I'm your creation, but lots of things are God's creation. Not everything is his beloved. But we are because of the cross. And you love me as I am. When we were the enemies of God, Christ came for us. You've called me chosen. God looked at us and said, I want you for my kingdom. I want you for my bride. Unashamed to call me your own, I am your beloved. Because we are. Accepted in Jesus means accepted like Jesus. God loves us as much as he loves Jesus? That can't be. Jesus' words were perfect. His actions were perfect. His character was perfect. His heart was perfect. Yeah. And in God's eyes, we're perfect. God the Father accepts us like he accepts Jesus, loves us like he loves Jesus. That's great, Patrick. What do I do with this? What do I do with all of these titles or adjectives or descriptions? Blessed, chosen, holy and blameless. Adopted, accepted. You can, you can write next to accepted, beloved. What do we do with them? Believe them. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to believe it and own it and walk in it. What do we do with this stuff? We believe it. Because we need to. It's so important that we do. Youth have been going through a series, I think they, James told me, and I can't remember if they wrapped up this week or last week, but the, the series is No More Dragons, and the subtitle is Defeating the Lies That Come from the Enemy. Turns out, the key to defeating the lies of the enemy is crushing them with truth from God. And this is a season where we need to do that more than most seasons. We, we stumbled into the holidays last week. I was as surprised as you were. And now we got the snow to prove it. And Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year and everything in between, the, the, the all opportunities for genuine celebration and, and, and gratitude and worship and love. But that just makes them fertile ground for the lies of the enemy. I get that this morning you probably didn't hear something that you, you, you didn't know. Blessed, chose, uh, chosen, holy and blameless. Adopted, accepted, familiar concepts to most of us. My hope in unpacking them this morning is before we get any deeper into December, we take a moment and decide to believe what we know. So when the enemy starts playing his game, starts whispering lies about how our lives are lacking, their Thanksgiving was nicer than mine. Their family looks, looks put together on social media. Mine's an unmade bed. When we start thinking about how much we're lacking because we didn't go to the Black Friday sales and save more money than we could afford. and How much more exciting somebody's life looks like on their Christmas card and how, how much their kids are accomplishing and how, how lame I am. I can be ready to say back to Satan, I'm not lacking anything, nothing that I need. I'm blessed Things that the world spends a lifetime seeking after, things that Solomon spent a fortune pursuing, are mine right now, already, and eternally. When Satan tries to tell me, 
I'm not special. You're just an ordinary person leading an ordinary life. Not standing out, not rising above the crowd, not getting noticed because you're not doing anything meaningful. Not respected or appreciated because you're not making a difference. My hope is that, is that we'll be able to say, step back, Satan. I am, in fact, the opposite of ordinary. God chose me. God, had want, God wanted my voice to praise him. He wanted my life to worship him. Not the life that I had. Not the voice that I was born with, but the, the, the life that he put in me. And the praise that he inhabits. He wanted the things that make me me to be redeemed to be part of the people he calls bride. Loving him and loved by him. And what could be more special than that? When the enemy dredges up memories from the battle days, I don't know what is it about Christmas. I think, I think just Christmas and childhood and looking backward. We try to remember one thing, and all of a sudden it's a whole flood of other stuff. And the enemy points at all of that other stuff and says, you see, you're corrupt, you're worthless, you're stained. I can tell him, if, if, if I've taken these, these truths to heart, I can look at them and I can tell him, okay, A, you don't know the half of it. Because you haven't even talked about the real bad stuff. You weren't paying attention, I guess. But even if you were, it wouldn't matter because God doesn't remember. You, you, you know the, the, the way that Satan knows our names. He studies us. He knows our names. But he calls us by our sin. Adulterer, murderer, thief, liar. God knows our sin. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He calls us by name. Why? The sin doesn't matter. The guilt's been removed. We're holy and blameless. What do we sing? Clean and safe. And nothing can change that. Not even me. December is December's the month I... I can find myself feeling alone. And, and ironically, I think most of us spend more time with other people in December than we do other times of year, but it, the best place to be alone is in a crowd, right? December's the time of year I miss my parents. December's the time of year that I'm aware how far Ann and I live from other family members. It's an easy time for any of us to feel alone, which makes us an easy mark for the enemy. Scripture compares Satan to a hungry lion stalking, seeking whom he'll devour. Every episode of Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom I ever saw, the lions don't go, through, go, go into the thick of the pack. They pick out the weak and the elderly and those who are alone. Satan wants to sidle up on us and say, yeah, you are alone. You're very, very alone. No one has ever been as alone as you are. But this morning, Paul reminds me, and, and I want to hang on to this, and I want all of us to lay hold of this. We're not alone. We've been adopted into an eternal family. And that family has a vertical component. We're children. He's our father. But it has a horizontal component. We have brothers and sisters. Paul tells us in Mark's gospel, uh, sorry, Jesus tells us in Mark's gospel, have you lost friends or family because you've come to Christ? Have you lost land or possessions? God will replace those a hundredfold in this life. Not when we get to heaven, but right here, right now. How? Through the church. Through the brothers and sisters who have also been adopted into God's family. Who are family for us, waiting for us wherever we go. We just have to be willing. Finally, this is the time of year. 
not just easy to feel alone, but easy to feel forgotten. You send a gift, you don't get a gift back. Send a card, another, you don't get a card back. The party happens, you're not invited. Satan will be there to pile on. I promise you. He will be there to say, if you disappeared tomorrow, would anyone really care? Would anyone even notice? The truth we have to be ready with, the truth that we have to store in our hearts and be believing so we're ready to deploy it, the, 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 the truth that slays every dragon, every lie whispered by Satan, is the truth that none of us will be forgotten if we're in Christ Jesus. We are loved. We were loved before we ever were. If my family were to forget me, if my friends chose to overlook me, if the world doesn't remember me, I will still be accepted in the beloved, and so will you. If every single person in our lives were to abandon us, God would still be there. He will never not be with us. He will always love us with a love that we don't have to earn, with a love that will never change. We will forever be his Beloved, what do we do with these five things? We remember them. What do we do with them? We believe them. What do we do with them? We, we store them in our hearts and meditate on them. So that when the time comes, we're ready to declare them. We're ready to, to, to declare them to the enemy as, as the truth that demolishes his lies. We're also ready to declare them to each other because there's no one in this room who isn't going to need encouragement at some point in the next month. And what do we do with these things? Oh, we praise God for them. We say with Paul, verse 3, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate him. How? With praise. He saved us, verse 6, for the praise and the glory of his name. What do we do? We give it to him. You know, we've only just got started in this, in this sentence that goes to verse 14. But Paul's, Paul's intent is clear. This is a call to praise. This is a summons to worship. And, and if we're remembering these truths, remembering them, clinging to them, using them, the best way to learn something is to learn it, teaching them, demolishing Satan's lies with them, we will praise. We, won't, we won't, won't be able to help it. We will praise. Our voices will, our lives will. Today, and for the remainder of our days and on into eternity, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are holy and blameless, we are adopted, we are beloved. And God, we praise you for that. Lord, thank you for coming after us. We truly cannot comprehend your love. The love that welcomed strangers. The love that transformed enemies the love that conquered our hate, our anger, the love that has changed and is changing and will change us into the image of your Son. Lord, continue teaching us your love. And we pray that our rejoicing
will be evident. We pray that it will be seen. We pray that it will challenge the seeker and the skeptic and the cynic. We pray that it would declare your glory.